you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I am your host, Janine Garner, and it is an absolute pleasure to have on the show today, Dr. Mike Perry. I had the joy of meeting Mike whilst I was in Harvard in May this year and was blown away uh, both by his background um, and also the work that he is doing now. And it was a joy every morning to work on our cases together. He is somebody that challenged my thinking, uh, questioned my curiosity, um, and absolutely helped with the whole learning Uh, experience of being at Harvard in May. So Dr. Mike Perry is the co-founder and chief operating officer at Catalyst Executive Advising and Development, where he and his team focus on developing leaders with the courage and the vision to transform culture and change lives. He is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel with over 20 years of service. He is a trusted leadership, human performance and behavior expert specializing in organizational consulting, leadership coaching and performance enhancement. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist, clinical trainer and teacher. And his clients include both individuals and groups within the private sector and the non-for-profit sector, as well as federal, state, and local government agencies. He's passionate about transforming lives through enhancing relationships and building trusts, and he believes that harnessing the power of relationships is the essential skill that signifies great leadership. As you can see, a man close to my heart of thinking in terms of how powerful connection and relationship is in this world in which we are living in. He's developed uh, the human experience model, and this model helps leaders to better understand the complex convergence of factors that shape each individual's unique perspectives and behavior, um, allowing for more effective interactions and responses um, for their people. So it's an absolute joy to have you on the show today, Mike. How are you? I am doing phenomenally well, Janine. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Now, uh, where are we speaking to you from? So I'm obviously in Sydney. It is 10.30 at night. And where are you today? I am on the east coast of the U.S. in Georgia. I'm actually in Augusta, Georgia, the home of the Masters. Most people on the planet know about the Masters Golf Tournament. So we're about 25 minutes from that site. Oh, gosh, even I know about the Masters Golf Tournament. I can't play golf or I understand the concept or why anyone would play golf, but I know (laughs) I know the Masters. So, Mike, it's a real joy to have you on the show, and I'm certainly um, excited to get into conversation with you. Um, Before we talk about the work that you're doing now, can you take me back a bit and uh, maybe share – um, what was it that you wanted to be when you grew up and and why and where do you think that came from? Wow. Well, well yeah, yeah. Thank you, Janine. Well, first, I just want to thank you for having me on, um, you know, and having me on with you, because as you said, in some ways, we're kindred spirits with regard to the importance of our connection with other people. And so I'm just really happy to discuss that um, this morning. Um, 
now. Now, look, uh, <laughs> what did I want to be? I don't I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I wanted to be. I mean, you know, initially, um, I thought I wanted to be a truck driver, actually. Uh, yeah. we, we would travel. Um, my, my parents and I, my, I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And we'd go you know, up and down the East Coast. You know, um, we lived in Virginia. We'd go up to Maryland or Washington, D.C. or down to Disney World. And my dad had a, a, a CB radio. And he talked to truck drivers all the way up and down the highway. And I just thought it was the coolest thing to drive a truck and to just be on the highway and free talking on the radio. <laughs> and so initially I wanted to drive an 18-wheeler when I was younger. When I was younger, that's what I wanted to do. And you had 20, you went, so you went from there to, did you go straight into the army or was there something in between? Um, well, I, I thought I was going to play football. That is American style football, helmet pads, whole nine, right? Um, so I played football all the way through high school. And um, I actually, I wasn't bad. You know, there were some scholarship opportunities. And then um, I broke my arm before my last year in high school. During during our summer practices, I broke my arm. Pretty, pretty um, severe injury that required a little bit of hardware and about a year and a half's worth of, worth of our rehab. At least that was the plan. And so the the number of schools that were available to me, you know, shrunk tremendously from many down to maybe two. And so um, I I took one of those offers and went to the Naval Academies. Um, well, I, I was accepted into the Naval Academy. However, I had to go into um, the prep school. They have a prep school up in Rhode Island. And um, uh, I did that as a way to uh, begin to rehabilitate and to get back onto the field. Um, as it would turn out, I didn't actually go into the Navy because after being at the prep school, I realized two things. Um, one, that the Navy was not for me from a cultural standpoint. A lot of water. I just didn't. <laughs> I didn't believe that that was going to be the direction. And I realized that football um, probably was not going to be anything in my future as well. And so if you're going to put your body through that, there should be a future in it. And I decided that I, I wouldn't do that. So um, at that point, I went to another university and I decided to study law initially because I thought that might be cool. Mm. So from football to law, I've got a couple of questions around that. First of all, when you, you know, you obviously had this this track in front of you of, of playing football and numerous opportunities. Can you remember that feeling of after you'd broken your arm where suddenly the path and the opportunities available had decreased significantly and and what you went through at that time? Yes. Um, the word that comes to mind is um, despair. Um, and I was lost, really, because I didn't know really what I wanted to do. All I did know is that I was going to play football somewhere. That was the goal. And um, once that goal was um, was at risk, I had really no idea, you know, what what would be next, how to even make that decision. And so that was that was really um, a number of I, for me at that point, I think I was oh, 16, 17 years old. It was kind of a dark point for me because um, I, I couldn't really see a future. And how did you how did you find the way out? What what did you do or who around you helped? Uh, you transition from that that dream to a another path. Um, you know, I, I come from a, a fairly 
close knit and spiritual family. And so part of it was uh, for me, it was it was prayer and just, you know, being reminded that although I couldn't see a future, um, there was, in fact, a future. And so just beginning to really shift my focus. It's interesting when you when you play sports, um, there's such a high level of commitment and, you know, you're practicing and you're training and everything is about the next practice, next training, getting something right. Well, when that's taken away, mm-hmm. you got to you got to kind of figure out some other things. And I think you know, that that in part, I didn't know at the time, but would, would help to begin to shape a way of thinking that would guide me into what actually, you know, what I was actually supposed to do. But but at that time, I just began to focus on things that were a little bit closer in um, focus on uh, relationships, fishing with my dad. Um, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out with my cousins, you know, back, back in my neighborhood home and, and just living life like a normal person instead of being focused on training and preparing all the time. So you went from there to law. What, what was it about law that interested you? <laughs> Television? I don't know. <laughs> I thought... I'm like, you know, it seems like that would be, you know, interesting study law, defend people, you know, prosecute people. I don't know. So I, I just it was more of an experiment, I guess. Yeah. You, know, you, had, you had to study something. And somehow I think there was a, uh, an interdisciplinary option. And I'm like, I can't go and say, well, I'm just studying everything. No. I, so I, I decided, you know, maybe I'll just I'll try law. But. <laughs> <laughs> what I discovered is they call it studying law for for a reason. I mean, the, the actual day to day, I mean, it's kind of a grind. And, I, and there's these volumes of books that you're supposed to somehow, you know, understand case cases. And and I don't know. So I thought, you know, wow, this this maybe this isn't the thing. So um, maybe psychology. And, and, and it was it was literally kind of that quick a shift. Like, huh, I don't know. I need something that's a bit more engaging on a, on a routine basis maybe psychology. And I knew that if I studied psychology, then it would require that I take it all the way, which in psychology is, is a doctoral degree, because otherwise you, you find yourself in a place where you can't really use the tools that you're gathering because you're not licensed, you're not qualified, you're not you know sanctioned to do that. So um, one thing that I, I've always been fearful of is, is being closed in. And that, and that experience with football where football was kind of it and then it was gone for the most part um that that I was reminded of that like you know I need to make sure whatever I do that I can swing as many doors open for as long as I want to do it and a doctoral degree in psychology is the way to do that so so what what doors did it open for you Mike where where did you go once you had uh your qualifications what was next well actually so the, the first thing um, that was next was the bachelor's degree. Um, however, what I didn't mention is that when I went to that next university, I was on um, a scholarship. The, the Army has what's called reserve officer training course um, um, programs that are that are, that are in, in universities all over the country. And um, they offer scholarships to those. So, so I'd already been to a military school. So the scholarship, um, I won't say it was guaranteed, but um, I was awarded that without much fanfare. And so I was there on scholarship with the understanding that I would then go into the army afterwards, after graduation. So I actually got the degree, the bachelor's degree, and then went on into the army and started working because 
I, went, I wasn't qualified for the Army's uh, doctoral program for a, a number of years. So I had to go and, and kind of do um, do the work of of a regular you know, Army officer, soldier. So that's what I did. And um, and then I had to compete to get into the program I got into. There was one slot period for the entire Army. Army had a slot. Navy had a slot. Air Force had a slot. And so I, I won the Army slot and went into the um, this program. And there I began to rediscover myself. And now we're talking, you know, I am um, in my, I don't know, I'm almost 30 years old at this point. And I began to rediscover myself. I thought, um, just like, uh, you know, when we met at Harvard, I thought I was going to get tools that would tell me how to do the job. (laughs) But what graduate school and the experience of, of, of learning how to become a clinical psychologist, what it does is really force you to go inside first and to begin to really deal with yourself. Um, everything you're afraid of, um, everything that you believe, you know, having to question everything. And um, so that was, a, that was, I believe, a, a real a transformative journey for me because um, I thought I was going to help a lot of people, but I think I was probably helped most by having to go through that experience. What sort of things did you discover about yourself at that time? <laughs> um, I discovered that I was, well, I say I am. I, dis- I discovered that I, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm judgmental. Um, mm-hmm. I discovered that I might tend to be selfish. Um, but I also discovered that uh, I be- my gift is, some in some way connecting with people where they are. There's no fear about going to where people might be, whether that be emotionally or even physically. Um, I'm willing to just stand beside people, sit beside people wherever they are, and and to um, and be patient enough uh, to help walk them, you know, somewhere different if that's where they want to be. Um, and so, and I discovered too that I am both introvert and extrovert all at the same time. Um, I, I remember going into work and, you know, I have, I look at the, at my schedule and there's a full caseload and I'm thinking, Oh my God, I don't, I'm not in the mood today. I hope somebody no shows. <laughs> and then, um, the knock, the knock comes on the door, they walk in the room and everything changes. And I have all this energy and I lose track of time. Next thing you know, the day is over. And so, um, I can, I discovered that I could very well be you know, in the middle of the lake fishing, which I like to do when I can, um, all alone on a Wednesday morning when everyone else is at work. And I can be right in the thick of things um, at work and be totally in my element. So um, it's a few few things that I learned about myself. What, um, is there a specific watershed moment in your life to hear that um, you think has affected the work that you're doing now? Hmm. Well, um, I, my, my life is is full of, uh, of of watershed moments, I think. But I, I think one one that's more recent um, was when I, after actually after I retired um, from the army. You know, every you know when you get you get a little bit more mature, you think you have it all figured out, and then you discover there are many more things to learn. And um, I, I really began to. Um, um, Georgetown actually is where I was after I, I, I left the army, retired, went to Georgetown to their coaching program. And again, it was, Hey, go find yourself first. 
and just pay attention. And so one day I'm, I'm sitting at home and, uh, you know, I, I, I work and it's just automatic. I mean, I get up early, I start, I can get lost in it. And next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. And so, um, but I was paying attention to how I was working and my daughter walked into the office and we're having a conversation. And all of a sudden I, I catch myself, I'm typing, I'm looking at my screen and I'm continuing to type as we have a conversation. And it's the first time I, I really kind of stepped back and kind of gone, taking a macro, macro view of what I was doing. And I realized that um, with all of the work, all of the busyness, I was neglecting the thing at that moment that was most important. And in that moment, I, I thought to myself, you know, at this, at this point, my, my children are, you know, in their early to mid teens, both of them, two daughters. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, how many moments have I missed because I've been so, you know, enthralled in what I was doing that was supposed to be so important. And these people, these human beings that we brought into the world and that we're raising, um, what have they not gotten because I was so distracted? And so at that moment, I pushed back from the computer and that and that was symbolic because I thought about everything else I needed to push back from and turn and face, you know, my children and look them in the eye and turn and face my wife and look her in the eye and whomever it is at that moment, right? They deserve everything I have at that moment because if I'm giving half of myself or a portion of myself to anything, then I'm doing that particular thing or that particular person a disservice. So, um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of a watershed moment for me, even at a point in life where, you know, you think you're supposed to have it figured out. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? We're almost living, we're living in a world that is more connected than ever before. And yet we seem to be becoming more disconnected. And, um, and it's interesting how this is such a core part of your work in terms of this connection piece and human beings, when it comes to, to the work that you do in that leadership space or in that organizational space, how, how does that experience and what you've experienced personally translate into business or into leadership? I think if we're being honest with ourselves, um, then we begin to see ourselves in other people. And if we can begin to communicate, not, you know, speculate. And oftentimes, you know, there, there's a lot of reading, there's much research. I, I find that a lot of the, the conversations that really gain traction and just kind of explode um, with insight are the ones where they're just two people, right? We're just sharing about what it is like. I remember standing in front of our, uh, one of our Chamber of Commerce events and we were talking about, I think, work-life balance. And we know that that's a that's a myth. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I asked, you know, and, and that year, I think it was August. We hadn't taken a vacation yet. And mm -hmm. I asked, you know, OK, how many people have taken vacation? And many hands went up. How many of you actually how, who took your cell phone with you and responded to work emails? I mean, there were about 90 percent of the room. The hands went up. And and I knew that because I do it. And um, so I, I think that our own experiences, if we're willing to be vulnerable and transparent enough to share our own experiences, I believe that people meet at that place. If you're, if you're brave enough to, to share emotion, I believe that people meet at that place. And so if I've been, you know, fear, fearful or anxious or, or whatever, or even, you know, happy about something, 
if you're able to somehow communicate that to other people, they get that. You know, we I think we we get sometimes a bit too academic and we and we go right over people's heads and it's easy to discount that. But if I if we reach in and we grab them at the place where they can feel that is what matters, I think. And I think that's what using your own experience does. And we were we were talking before we um, off air about this concept um, of imperfection, and actually you were you were talking to a, a quote along the lines of you know all precious works of art have inherent flaws in them, and um, again this is something so close to some of the work that I'm doing around this 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 element of human nature and accepting our imperfections and our flaws. How do you see that playing out in your work? Um, I, I think it's actually, it is central to my work. It's, it's crucial because we've all, it, well, let me, let, me, let me say this. If you look at, um, you know, fear or, you know, anxiety, you know, the pressure that is placed on people or that they place on themselves, uh, oftentimes you will find if you dig deep enough, you will find that that's rooted in some expectation of perfection. Um, every, because we're all, we, you know, human beings instinctively, we look around and we compare ourselves and, and, and there's been worked on this for decades now. Right. But we compare ourselves to other people in order to, to determine where you, where we are. Are we, are we getting it right? You know, are we somehow pretty much like everyone else or not. And so, but the problem with that is that everyone is always putting on their best face. The social media is a great example of that um, because people always post the cool stuff mm. and we're constantly making those comparisons. But um, what we see is more kind of a representation of perfection. The reality is that, that it's impossible for it to be perfect, right? I mean, I know that you're at home like, you know, arguing with your spouse, like I'm arguing with mine from time to time, because that's just the way it is. But we don't see that very often. And so um, at work, you know, everyone has these high expectations. And, um, you know, oftentimes they say, hey, they want me, they believe, they expect X, Y, and Z of me. However, a lot of times those expectations are internal. And, um, and when people miss perfection, now all of a sudden they believe, that they're somehow getting it wrong. They're, they're flawed in some way when the reality is nobody's getting it perfect, right? Mm -hmm. We're just all, you know, doing well enough <laughs> to make it. And um, I, I believe if you, if you can accept that, and for some people that's, that, that feels like quitting, <laughs> right? But if you're giving the best you can give on a certain day, it may not be perfect, but it was the best you can give. And generally speaking, um, you're going to be okay. And, but it's, we've, we've, set such high expectations that it's hard for people to really, really embrace the idea that they don't have to get it perfect, right? You know, there's that saying that um, perfection is, is the enemy of the good. And, and more and more, I'm trying to accept that. And somehow, in some days, I intentionally accept less than perfect as a therapy for myself. <laughs> you touched on that. Uh... In, in that around the fear of failure or the fear of comparison. Do you have a specific example for yourself where um, you, you failed or you, you messed up and in hindsight it was one of the biggest learnings? 
Ooh, okay. So, I mean, how how personal do you want me to get here, Janine? Entirely up to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much failure, so little time. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, okay. I, I'll tell you this because I, I think this is important, and um, I don't know if most people would go here, but I think it's important, and so I, I'll, I'll I'll share it with you. Um, and, and that is, I'm going to talk about relationship failure because what, what I also find is that, you know, people will sometimes try to find a refuge at work when things at home are really crumbling. And eventually, if home is crumbling, everything else will crumble. And so um, I, think, I think my greatest failure actually was a, more of a relationship failure, um, you know, with my wife. Right. And so and, and, and she wouldn't mind that I share this with you because we've decided that our story is important. And so we've been telling our story for a number of years now. But I think that, um, you know, there's so much pressure. You know, we're, you know, she was in the army as well, um, dual military couple. You know, we had just left, I think, Korea, came back to San Antonio. We're having babies and um, there's just no time, right? And so things begin to get very contentious. And, um, and, then, and then distance comes in. And then once distance comes into your relationship, that becomes a real problem because the relationship in many ways is what protects you from um, all other types of things that are waiting for you out there. Right. And so um, the bottom line is I, I, I simply say I, I almost wrecked my marriage with a number of bad decisions. I considered that a complete failure because until that point, we were kind of what you consider maybe, you know, the dream couple. Right. This is what you want your marriage to look like. The reality is on the surface. It was not strong, but in part because um, at that time, I don't think I was very, um, I mean, if, to be honest, like a very forgiving person, right? It's just like, hey, you know, this, this is how I want it. This is what you said it was going to be. And doggone it, that's what I expect. And so that's not what marriage is. That's not what a relationship is, right? It is, a relationship is forgiveness. And it is, you know, um, you know, creating space for people to be imperfect and to make mistakes and things like that. It's not what I did. And so we, um, you know, our marriage really kind of came to the brink and, but it didn't, it didn't end. And so now it is stronger than it ever has been. Why? Well, because we learned um, to create space for people's inherent human humanity and flaws. And we learned that um, if we continue to talk, even when it's not, the best, it is still strong, right? It didn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, all happy, you know, every single minute of every day in order to be strong, right? Because we're connected. We want the same things. We love each other. And so if you're able to do that, um, certainly if I could do that in my marriage, then it just kind of, it made me a better human being in every single part of my life. And by the way, it made my life just more stable and more content so that, um, I was able to kind of to focus on what I need to focus on to be successful. Oh, so. thank you. No, thank you for sharing that, Mike, because I think in the world that we're living in where all we are seeing is perfection, it's mm -hmm. almost exhausting to keep up with that perfection. And as a result, I think we are seeing relationships breaking down across the board. Um, you know, we're seeing relationships at the macro level from a uh, government and a cultural perspective under challenge. We're seeing relationships in the workplace. Um, I read recently that the levels of trust 
are at their lowest level ever when it comes to trusting governments and non-governments and brands and the news. And it's all filtering down to, to relationships with spouses, right down to kids. Um, so I think what you shared there in terms of the power of connection and humanity and communication um, all wrapped up in, um, you know, it's lovely package of vulnerability and honesty and full disclosure is part of the challenge, right? Um, and and that's obviously the stuff that you're seeing um, when you're working with, with leaders, um, either in communities or in organizations. Do you see those same challenges across the board too? Yes. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned vulnerability because trust and vulnerability, they, they, you know, they exist together, right? And, and so, because what we see is that people, they, people bring the things that they learn into their workplace. Make no mistake, when we see people behaving in certain ways, not trusting, et cetera, if you find a lack of trust at work, you'll generally find it somewhere else in their lives. And what, what, what is required in order to build trust, someone has to be vulnerable. Someone has to go first. The problem people have with vulnerability is that you know, it requires that I basically open up. I give you everything that is potentially that can potentially hurt me. I give it to you freely with the trust that you won't use it in that way. And people find that very difficult to do. And the way that our brain responds is to defend because that's what we do. Inherently, our brain is designed to keep us safe and it is designed to keep us comfortable. And so we begin to, to say things and do things that nudge us outside of that comfort zone. We retreat and we defend. That's what happens at work. And so that comes, that comes across how? Conflict resolution. Conflict, conflict resolution and communication training, all that thing, those things that people ask for all the time, um, you know, those things actually are not that effective because the real problem is not in how you say what you say. That's what we like to say, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. <laughs> the real problem is really kind of in, in your heart and in your head. It's about the fear of being hurt again, the fear of being burned again, the fear of you letting me down again. And so because nobody likes how that feels, they set up defenses. And that's what you see at the workplaces. It is why people can't come together and accomplish amazing things because they're protecting themselves. And it is impossible to protect yourself on one hand and to be totally creative and innovative and to flow with other people on the other. Mm. just doesn't happen. So I'm imagining there's people listening to this right now that are nodding their heads like I am um, in agreement with you and equally curious and asking questions around, okay, so how do I, how do I show more vulnerability or how do I um, reconnect when I'm working in a toxic environment where I'm fearful of my leadership or my bosses where I'm worried ultimately about losing my job. Have you got any, um, any specific words of advice that you would, you would share with our listeners around um, h- how to reconnect with themselves so that they do have that strength to um, build those connections, those better connections? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always a, a tough one, but I think, in part, I think there are two major things that we, we have to do. Um, the first is that we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be, you know, you have to be willing to say out loud to yourself, you know what? I don't trust that person. or I don't trust people at all. 
And this is why, right? This is what I've learned about people. This is what I've learned. Um, that's one thing I think we have to do because until we're honest with ourselves, um, we keep on saying things like, oh, yeah, no, it's no problem. Or we begin to assign our behavior to other people, right? We assign that blame or what, what have you um, to other folks. And we're, so we're not really getting to the root of what drives our behavior. Um, but I think the other thing is that we have to find safe ways to experiment. I believe there's safety in numbers. So um, if you're in a toxic work environment or if you're in an environment where maybe you're struggling with something, um, maybe it only takes one person, but there has to be somebody who you connect with, who's able to, um, you're able to share kind of your story, your perspective, you know, your ideas and thoughts, fears, dreams, all that. And somebody who can kind of agree with you on those things or check you when you're perhaps a, a bit off. But like one per, a one person experiment can change everything for someone because be, you begin to because, you know, our, our brains, we learn very quickly. Right. And so we adapt. Can't trust anybody. So let me just stay to myself. But if I can trust one person, well, all of a sudden that flies in the face of I can't trust anyone. And maybe if I can trust this person, maybe there's another one. And so these little networks are formed. Um, and so I believe that the answer to a lot of the things that trouble us often begins with the place where it started. If it starts with people, the answer has got to be with people. Mm, mm, it's pretty powerful stuff. So so in this context of this, this podcast, which is titled Unleashing Brilliance, from your, your perspective, what do you think of or what does it mean to you um, in terms of people being in a position or people being brave enough to unleash their brilliance? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I love this concept of unleashing brilliance because what it suggests to me is that everyone possesses some level of brilliance, something that they, they uniquely have. I and mean, if you imagine it, billions of people on the planet, every single person sees that planet in a very different way. Their experience is completely different. And that just blows my mind. And so the idea is that everybody has something in them to offer that world, but fear often keeps us um, from, it holds us back. We, you know, we, we have that brilliance in us, but we keep it caged because maybe, you know, as you and I discussed before, maybe, you know, I'm embarrassed about what people think about my ideas. Um, maybe I'm afraid of rejection. Uh, maybe I'm afraid of exposing some things that I want to keep hidden. And so they keep those things locked in. And so the idea of unleashing brilliance is simply, it's not about creating something new. It's about releasing what you have because you have enough today to make all the changes, to live the life you want to live, to change the world. You have it in you already. It's just a matter of whether, whether or not you're willing to let it go and share it. Oh. That's what Unleashing Brilliance is. Who, um, who do you think has been the, the biggest influence in your life, Mike? Hmm. Um, the biggest influence? I, I have to say um, certainly my parents, and, and they both have some unique ways they've done that. But the thing that, re that resonates with me over and over again is uh, talking to my mom, who um, she was an English professor, and she's retired now. Um, but she was also a world-class soprano. Um, and you've never heard her name because she was afraid. Yeah. Uh, and I remember her telling me basically, you know, she went into, she taught because it was safe. But um, what she told me is 
you know, whatever you do, um, don't do it uh, to chase money. Um, you know, don't not do something because of fear. Just do what your heart leads you to do and everything else will fall into place. And so that's what I tried to, you know, my life is, is really, it's kind of a hodgepodge. It's confusing to people looking in from the outside, but um, that's what I tried to do. And I think it's made all the difference for me. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you had the wonderful opportunity to, to use a crystal ball to tell you a truth about yourself or your life or the future or anything else for that matter, what, what would you like to know? Um, you know what, if I'm being honest, <laughs> sometimes it, I, I, I would like, you know, you, you, you want to do things that make a difference. And, and I realize that for most of the people that you make a difference for, you, you never hear from them. Right. But, but I would like to know sometimes, you know, you, you kind of want to know you put something out there and people say, Hey, that's great. You know, I, sometimes you want to know what, well, what was the rest of the story? What really, what else happened? <laughs> you know, what was the outcome? Of, of what you took from this. And because we have to kind of get comfortable with the idea that oftentimes we'll never know. But sometimes I think it would be cool to know what happens with people, you know, whether they've been in therapy or that person who really overcame something um, that took them to the brink and now, you know, they're good and they're off doing their thing. Where are they? What's going on? So oftentimes I, I just want to know what's happening with people. Mm, I, I, and I love that concept. I talk about that uh, that ripple effect that we all have, but we don't necessarily know or appreciate how far that that ripple goes in terms of the impact that we're having. It reminds me a lot of that Drew Dudley Everyday Leadership TED Talk. I don't know if you've seen that one, where he talks about lollipop moments and how we we have no idea who you are affecting. So if you if you could go back, if 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 I were to bring your mom in now um, to sit across from us and join in this conversation, what would you like to say to her? Oh, Janine, come on. Are you serious? Listen, I am. Okay. There's no video. So if I cry, you all won't know. <laughs> but I, actually, maybe I'll call it after this because I, I think that um, what she needs to know is, and, and, I, and I would say for anyone who, if there's, if there's a, something you need to say to people, say it now. And, and I think what she needs to know is that um, those simple words in a way help me to overcome fear and overcome the weight of expectations of everyone else. Because there have been a number of times where I've made decisions and people have been confused. Even the idea of retiring from the army, um, because my career was still on a very much a, an upward path and it was exactly how I pictured it and, and put on paper you know, 20 years before. And I decided that um, I was being called to do something different in a very different way. And I did it and it made no sense. And, um, but I think those simple words from my mom, they changed my life and helped me to be, to genuinely be able to say that sometimes you, you do the thing that makes no financial sense. Sometimes you do the thing that, that doesn't make logical sense and you go in a direction that is completely counter to what people thought because you know it's the right thing for you. And so um, that is a level of freedom that you, you just can't put a price tag on that. And so um, I, I think with those simple words, she's completely changed the course of my life and hopefully the course of, of millions of other people's lives as well. Oh, gosh, what an incredible woman. And I know people are going to ask me, ask the question. So so what did you change? You left 
quickly tell me, you retired after 20 years to do what? What was the trigger? The trigger was, um, hmm. so, you know, my, the, the plan was stay in the Army um, and basically be the, um, the head psychologist for the, for the Army. That was kind of, that was the path. And um, long story short, I'm about, I'm not about just going through the motions, right? I, be, I believe that if we're, we're doing work, that work should result in something. And, and, and with the work I was doing with, with helping to um, develop leaders and helping to change culture, you, you got to have to, you, you got to want that. And I thought that in the environment I was in, it was constricting and we were going through the motions and people by and large, you know, it was, it was spotty. They didn't, the, the desire for change wasn't deep and persistent. And I just didn't want to fight against a system that didn't want to be changed. And so I decided to go out and to be available to people who want to do just that. And so that's what compelled me to get out of the army. And that's what compelled us to be, to start Catalyst mm-hmm. and to get kind of build, help leaders understand how to build better relationships and how to prioritize people over everything else. And if they were able to do that, then everything else would fall into place. So what a wonderful gift to those leaders and to humanity that your mother gave you in terms of giving you the courage to face your fear and do things that aren't necessarily conforming. Mike, I could keep talking to you for hours um, but, um, you know, and we almost have been, there was just some, some gorgeous, amazing, insightful, incredible things that you've spoken about in this conversation. Um, you know, you talked a lot about the importance of vulnerability and trust and how actually those two things coexist. And, um, it's wonderful to hear that because there's a lot of leadership uh, documentation articles that talk about one or the other, but actually both of them need to coexist if we are going to change our workplaces. Um, I love the concept uh, or the story that you shared of the realisation of how many moments we may have missed. And I'd just like to expand on that and add to that. I wonder how many moments we miss, not just with our families, but with our teams Um, and with our organizations and with the people around us because we're so busy rushing through life. And by missing those moments, perhaps we're also missing the clues um, that we actually need to help us move forward. And wrapped in that, um, which goes to your answer to the crystal ball question, is how many people have we actually missed and forgotten to acknowledge for the impact that they've had on us? Um, I loved our whole conversation around the power of, connect, of connection and with that, the challenge of perfection um, and particularly in the society that we're living in now. And sort of to wrap that up, your, your messaging around the bravery and the courage that we've all got to have um, to learn to actually be a little bit more honest with ourselves. And I wonder if we were to be more honest whether, you know, we could all become the brilliant version of ourselves that we want to become. Mike, I've got one final question for you. Um, You know, we often hear conversations, interviews, discussions about, uh, that ask the question, what do you want to be? What's next for you? My question is more to do with you. And I'm curious. uh, My question for you is, who do you want to be remembered for or as? Oh, wow. So um, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I want to be remembered as someone 
who, um, I don't know, someone who made a difference because, because I was here, something changed for someone. I, I, I do want to be remembered as someone who's really, really kind of chill and down to earth and all that, but who had ridiculous impact on people, right? Because I, I just think that um, if, if, if you're making a difference for people, well, something should change because you existed, right? And so, um, I don't know, it's pretty broad, but, but I, I just want to be remembered as someone who, who, um, whose presence actually changed something for someone. Hmm. Well, in the spirit of, of the feedback, Mike, um, you did that for me. We met back in May two complete strangers arriving in a training room, a, a university room at Harvard and thrown together to uh, discuss adaptive challenges. And um, as I said in, in our introduction, the, the person that you are, the insight that you gave and the incredible amount of, of compassion that you have um, to actually connect and understand um, I, uh, you absolutely were one of the key people that I remember, and I certainly hope I get to see you in person again. And if you hadn't have made the impact, this, this conversation wouldn't have happened. So just the sheer ripple effect of us meeting at Harvard, this podcast hopefully allows the impacts of your messaging to spread a little bit further than this computer screen and podcast. Um, Mike, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Um, thank you so much for getting up early for me this morning. And I look forward to oh, my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mike. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.